Welcome to the Public Morality. After nearly 24 hours of making the case to the Senate that President Donald Trump should be removed from office, it is now the president's legal team that has the floor to make the contrarian case. When historians look back on this moment of American history, the impeachment and Senate trial of Donald Trump may be remembered for how much was revealed after the House vote to impeach. We have unredacted emails, key persons willing to testify, and a stunning new book revelation make the impeachment of President Trump an evolving door with seemingly endless supply of dropping shoes. Joining us to discuss the latest on the impeachment trial, we welcome back Dr. Elaine Kmart. Dr. Kmart is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Elaine Kmart, welcome back to the Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the unique characteristics that seems um, to s- separate this impeachment of uh, President Trump is the amount of information that has been made public since the House voted on articles of impeachment nearly a month ago. Given the history of, uh, of, of president's impeachments that you're uh, familiar with, would that be accurate? Is, is this unique in that sense that we've got more information after the House has uh, voted on articles of impeachment? Well, it's, of course, when you're talking about articles of impeachment, it's really hard to say since there's only been four instances in all of American history. And um, the, if we don't go to the Clinton one, this is different than the Clinton one in that all of the information and all of the, the evidence, so to speak, was um, made public in the Star Report by the time the impeachment happened. So there really wasn't anything new that came out. Um, in the Nixon impeachment, it was a long, long two-year process of the Irvin hearing that led to the point where the House voted impeachment. But the information there continued to trickle out because during that period of time, like during this period of time, um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of, uh, you know, new things coming to light and people were going to trial and being sent to jail, which happened during the Mueller phase of the investigation into Trump. And, of course, during the Andrew Johnson impeachment, um, the evidence was not nearly as important because the issue was, did he violate this obscure law called the Tenure of Office Act? But the real issue there was Andrew Johnson's behavior um, towards the Reconstruction after the Civil War. So they're all a little bit different. Um, What makes this unique is the absolute uh, refusal of the president to hand over relevant documents and to allow witnesses to testify. And that is new, as far as I can tell, in the history of impeachment. And that's why we're seeing more evidence coming out, even as the trial has begun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things, in, when, I, when I listen to public discourse and I read um, uh, commentary, uh, should we be looking at this through a legal lens, a political lens, a sort of a hybrid of both? Well, it's always a hybrid, but it's really not a legal lens, it's a constitutional lens. So, the, so for instance, on the legal lens, you can argue, as the House managers have, that the president violated two laws. 
One, it's illegal to solicit a foreigner for um, something of benefit to an American political campaign. So just as President Zelensky would, would not be allowed to give President Trump a $1,000 campaign contribution, that would be illegal, he's not an American citizen, it is also illegal for him to do something like investigate the Bidens that would turn out to be of value to President Trump's campaign. So that's the first legal violation. The second legal violation is the fact that the um, uh, holding up of aid is a violation of the 1974 Impoundment Act, which was passed after Richard Nixon's presidency. Um, and it basically says that a president can't not spend money that has been duly appropriated and signed by him into law um, just because he doesn't like the purpose that the money's going for. And so, obviously, the president in holding up the Ukraine aid, for a time at least, um, is could be in violation of that law. So there are two legal issues here. Um, but the constitutional issue is, is the president abusing his power um, by using the power of the office, in this instance, um, his power to hold up aid, um, to get something that benefits himself as opposed to benefiting the country. So let's be clear. I mean, you heard the House, the Senate uh, defenders of the president on Sunday argued that lots of presidents hold up aid. This is absolutely true. But they hold up aid for reasons that have to do with American foreign policy, not with reasons that have to do with the president's reelection campaign. And that's, of course, the big difference here. And then yesterday we've got, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, we're recording the day after, uh, the New York Times report that the president communicated directly uh, to former uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton that the $391 million in foreign aid um, from Ukraine was withheld and acknowledgement that it was done so uh, to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. Um Talk about how that impacts sort of the um, uh, the position that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has held that uh, unlikelihood that there will be witnesses. Is this a, is this a game changer in that sense? Um, uh, it depends on four votes. Okay, it's it could be a game changer if four Republicans vote to allow witnesses, and of course in this case the, the, the most important witness, witness is John Bolton. Um, again, the Republicans' defense has been that the president never intended there to be a quid pro quo. Now, to a lot of people that's not very believable since all these things were happening at once. He just happened to be holding up the aid while he was happening to have a phone call with Zelensky um, where he asked for a favor. So, you know, but the the big issue here is, did the president intend to abuse his power, break the law, by creating a quid pro quo? And apparently, from the news story that broke on Saturday night, apparently John Bolton is prepared to testify that, yes, it was very much um, intentional, and the president, therefore, is guilty. Uh, it could be the equivalent of the um, tapes in the Nixon impeachment, where, you know, all of the president's men and the president himself argued, oh, the president wasn't involved, wasn't involved, even 
and it got less and more and more difficult to believe as one after another of the president's close advisors went off to jail. But nonetheless, even even really late into the um, spring, it, it was not, not nobody had really proved that the president himself had ordered um, an obstruction of justice. And then, of course, the Watergate tapes came out, and you heard the president very clearly on there saying to his chief of staff, uh, Mr. Haldeman, uh, get the CIA to tell the FBI to back off on Watergate. And that, of course, was an abuse of power, and that pretty much tied the president himself. So what we're, you know, what could be a game changer here is some convincing testimony and some corroboration that, in fact, the president himself did see this as a quid pro quo. And, and with and with uh, the latest CNN poll that I saw, uh, with nearly uh, roughly seventy percent uh, of those polled want witnesses. Uh, if you even put this through a political lens, how much pressure would would Republican senators be to not hold witnesses, given that sentiment even before the revelation of the uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton's um, revelation? The Republican senators fall into three sort of categories, right? There's the those who are afraid they might be beaten in, in the general election, and they obviously want to appear fair-minded. The second group are Republican senators who are retiring, and that's a very interesting group because, you know, they really don't have to stand for re-election, and they may decide that there's a constitutional, you know, um, duty that's higher than their own day-to-day politics. And the third group, which we haven't seen much of, but I I still think could appear, are what I call the Profiles in Courage group. You just don't know if there's anybody out there being very quiet right now who in the end will just say, oh, the heck with my political future. Um, I've listened to the evidence. I believe the president was wrong, and I'm going to vote to allow witnesses and then maybe eventually vote to um, convict him. So I think those are the three groups you want to look at when you're looking at who might be uh, called upon to uh, vote for witnesses. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Elaine K. Marks, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution located in Washington, D.C. And, and doc, Dr. K. Mark, uh, and these are my words, uh, when the Constitution was ratified, there was an implied assumption that we the people would want it to succeed. Uh, But after watching the Senate hearings thus far, do you get the feeling that there's a collective desire for the Republic to succeed, or are we relinquishing in the immediacy of the moment without any consideration for the long-term implications? Well, I think there's a tug of war. I think you've identified the two poles very well. And I think there's a tug of war going on there. Um, I think there's a lot of Democrats who were nervous about impeachment from the beginning. They didn't really see it in their political advantage um, to, you know, motive um, to rile up the president's base. But they feel that there's a constitutional duty to do deal with impeachment and that they have to do it regardless of the political consequences. Um, and so there's, and I think in a, the minds of a lot of members of Congress, 
there's sort of a tug between the politics and between what they feel is their constitutional duty. Um, and I suspect that there are Republicans also who see this as their constitutional duty, um, even though they know that the politics for them is, is the immediate politics is pretty bad. The, the, way you can, the way you can look at the constitutional duty is if, in fact, this president was allowed to get away with um, asking foreign leaders for a foreign leader for interference in a campaign that would help his or her cause, uh, that would be a very bad precedent. You know, other, other presidents, future presidents, would, might feel that, oh, well, that's okay. You know, they tried to impeach Donald Trump over this, and uh, they didn't succeed, so I, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask Vladimir Putin. I'm going I'm to ask, um, you know, some other foreign leader. I'm going to ask them to get involved in the campaign so I can win. And that's, that's pretty dangerous. You know, when I'm listening to your your last answer, I'm I'm struck. You make it sound as if we're all the way back to where James Madison and uh, and Federalist Ten was concerned about factions. So are we already are we back there? Oh, we are. We we are back at the Constitution. That's for sure. Right? We are we are definitely back there. Um, and I think that every time you have an impeachment, because it is a rare and because it brings up all sorts of issues that are constitutional as opposed to merely legal. And so, for instance, the second article of impeachment is the uh, violation is, goes right to the heart of the separation of powers. And by not cooperating with Congress in an investigation, the president is basically asserting that he is more important than the Congress. Well, a lot of people in Congress, not to mention a lot of constitutional scholars, disagree with that. They say, no, the Congress is a co-equal branch. He can't tell Congress, no, I'm not going to participate in one of your inquiries, which is exactly what he's done. So interestingly enough, in all of the articles of impeachment that have been drawn up, and there's only been four, okay, this issue always is addressed, which is, the obstruction of justice by uh, the president when Congress is seeking an investigation. So it, it tells you how important it is and how every time we're in an impeachment fight, we are going back to James Madison and all the arguments that we had in the Constitutional Convention. Now, back in October, don't you hate it when you write something in back in October? It's something you wrote, so you know it's coming back to you. So oh, no. Hey, all right. I, I hope you're going to remind me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to remind you. Back in October, okay. um, you wrote on the, on the Brookings site, you posed this following question. Is Donald Trump simply saying what comes into his head, or does he have a political strategy? Based on what you have seen with, with the House uh, impeachment and the Senate trial, how would you answer the question you posed back in October? Um, I would say that he is, he still ha says exactly what comes into his head. Because, in fact, a lot of the things that he has said and tweeted during the course of this impeachment have actually hurt his legal case. On the other hand, um, his, the, the very, um, you know, obstreperousness of his comments, his, his tendency to always fight is obviously a political strategy 
designed to undermine the whole thing and not get to the actual issues of, you know, what he did and was what he did wrong. And so he, he still is doing that, but there's a broader context in which, you know, he plays to his base all the time and he believes that his base is the only thing that matters. And I think there's some people who question that, but that's clearly his strategy. Now, I know this is an area that you, you have some, some, some intimate expertise on, but some are arguing that the current process initiated by the Democratic Party uh, against President Trump and this impeachment uh, process has merely weaponized impeachment. Given the history of impeachment, how would you, Dr. K. Mark, answer that question? Well, I think the first, the first time we saw impeachment weaponized was in the Clinton impeachment. And they did, in, that was over the fact that he lied to the federal government about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Now, what happened there was that it, it, we went through a whole impeachment, we went through a whole trial, and the Senate acquitted him by a very large margin. What that said was that, yes, Bill Clinton had committed a federal crime. It is, it is a crime to lie to the federal government, to federal investigators. However, it also said that um, dalliances with sexual dalliances with someone who wasn't your wife were not the did not rise to the level of an impeachable offense. Okay, so that's where you get both the legal and the constitutional. In other words, he did violate the law, but this was not what the constitutional founders intended to be called high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, I think when we get to the um, when we get to this impeachment, when we get to the Trump impeachment, um, there are big issues at stake about who can interfere where. And I think that's why, and, and some did this reluctantly, I think that's why people felt with, that they had to proceed with impeachment and that there were issues that were bigger than um, uh, just taking down this president. Uh, and so... Yes, I can see where the Republicans would call this weaponizing it, but when you compare it to the Clinton impeachment, um, the issues at stake are a bit more profound. Um, and just once again, staying with just the history of impeachment for, for a moment, isn't initially, at least initially, hasn't the history of impeachment always been a, 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 a somewhat partisan affair, at least initially? Yeah, but although, although ironically, initially it wasn't between Democrats and Republicans. It was Republicans versus Republicans. Right. So, so the first impeachment was because Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's vice president, um, who had been a Democrat, by the way, but right. became a Republican to get on Lincoln's ticket, um, he took over Reconstruction and... Boy, oh boy! You want to see a mess? Go back and you—you you want to see a mess? Go back and look at that first impeachment, and go back and look at America in that period after the Civil War, where you had Union soldiers in the South protecting former slaves so they could vote. You had the Klan trying to kill uh, former slaves who voted, and and running guerrilla operations against the Union soldiers. Um, it was—I mean—it's just an, an enormous mess. And, of course, in that impeachment, 
the people who took on the Republican Vice President Andrew Johnson were the Republicans in the United States Senate who believed that he was undermining the purpose for which the Civil War had been fought and won. So that was a that was almost intra-party because the Democrats at that point were very small. Most of the southern states had not been readmitted to the Union. So that was really a, a more, as you mentioned before, with factions. That was really more of a factional fight within the Republican Party. Oh, we could say we could say it was partisan in the sense that Andrew Johnson was not Abraham Lincoln, and that was his problem. Was part of his problem, along with along with the policies you just articulated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was he was definitely not Abraham Lincoln, and and in fact, um, really took a. Probably, I mean, we don't know, we're speculating, but it seems as if he took a very opposite tack from what Lincoln would have taken. So even though the, the technicalities of her, his impeachment were on a, an obscure law called um, the um, Tenure of Office Act, yeah. a really obscure law. Now that wasn't I, un- ruled unconstitutional until the 20s, right? Well, no, it was, it was moved unconstitutional, I think, shortly after that. But, okay. Um, shortly after that, not um, I'm not sure it went to was lasted to the 20s. Although you might be right, um, but basically the issue there was really how we were going to conduct Reconstruction, mm. and um, that was that that mess. By the way, didn't get solved with the Andrew Johnson. He he was spared impeachment by one vote, but then he couldn't even get the nomination of his own political of the Republican Party in the following the following summer. So he, he didn't get nominated by the Republicans, and he didn't get nominated by the Democrats. So he basically kind of lost office without even running. Um, and uh, then, then that fight over Reconstruction went all the way on, all the way till 1876, where, unfortunately, um, for African Americans, it was decided in the wrong direction. And we had to wait another hundred years, practically, for mm-hmm. full civil rights. But... Um, that was a, that was you know you look at that first impeachment and it kind of makes our own time seem kind of calm. <laughs> right, right, right. You know what I mean. Right. And you make that that eighteen seventy six election. Ironically, that was the, uh, uh, an election where the victor Hayes received less popular vote um, than uh, Samuel Tilden. So there, there's another oh, irony right. there. Oh yeah, there's plenty, so many ironies there. Of course, it's you know, of course, one of the reasons was it was just in the South, in the in the former Confederate states. What happened in that election was literally pitched battles between the Unionists and the Southern white Democrats over who was going to get to vote and whether or not these former slaves were going to get to vote. So. Figuring out the actual popular vote from 1876 is near impossible <laughs> because it was just mammoth chaos, uh, particularly in the South. Speaking with Dr. Elaine Kmark at the Brookings Institution, um, what, in your view, would be the long-term implications if witnesses are not called? Well, I think that it would be uh, a pretty sad day. Because, in fact, in trials, and this is a trial, um, you have witnesses. Now, because an impeachment is so sui generis, I'm not sure that it would have much impact on the next impeachment unless we keep having them all the time, which I hope we won't. Um, 
So I'm not sure that it would have any long-term impact. The short-term impact might be that we never really get the full story brought out within the time frame of the trial. Uh, we will have the full story as soon as, um, you know, Josh Bolton's book hits the stands. Um, we're going to at least have his view of it, although it's not his view under oath, uh, which I think most of the senators, um, certainly the Democrats, would like to see. You know, you, 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 you mentioned the, the implication. I'm just wondering, as you were giving your last answer, that... If you don't have witnesses, I, I think it's fair to say it would be very unlikely that that any action would be taken against the president. He would be exonerated most likely on a, on a, a probably on a party line vote. Given his behavior, would we not in effect be saying that the executive branch is free to uh, voir dire witnesses from the Oval Office and sit on information? And that's certainly not a a process we want to take forward. I'm assuming. No, we don't. Absolutely. And that is, I mean, the big issues here, um, as we've discussed, have to do with separation of powers. And can the president, can a president get away with doing this? And it's not just the witnesses, it's the documents that they are, they've, they've handed over some documents, but um, there's still many more that they're sitting on. Um, you know, the president is, and the executive branch have really uh, played hardball with this, and frankly, they the Republicans have to worry about this because, you know, the tide does turn. Uh, president Trump is not going to be president for life as much as he thinks he should be. Um, he's not going to be president for life. There will be a Democratic president at some point. And then the Republicans are going to rue the day that they allowed the president to become so powerful. Uh, are we too binary in the sense that in the, our politics have been reduced to a zero-sum game in that, you know, the Chicago Tribune has been very vocal in their editorial pages about censuring the president. Um, could, 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 we, could we do something like call witnesses, censure the president, and then um, follow up by doing something that um, Arthur Schlesinger was concerned about, the imperial presidency, and have the Congress then pull back some of the uh, authority it has ceded the executive branch on in matters of foreign policy. Am I giving you too much there? Is that, am I just... No, 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 that's a good, that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I do think censure is actually, if, if the impeachment vote goes the way we all think it will to acquit the president, then I do think a censure vote might be in order. And you, in fact, first of all, you only need 51 votes to censure the president. And in fact, censure, because it doesn't involve removal from office, um, would in fact help achieve a couple goals. First of all, it would say clearly, it would have the Congress saying clearly, we don't think this kind of behavior on the part of a president is acceptable. And secondly, I think you'd get more Republicans on a censure vote than you would on an impeachment, on impeachment vote, just because it would not involve removal from office. And I think, frankly, that's kind of, in a funny way, that's kind of where the American public is, because, you know, they want to hear more witnesses. They do think the president did something wrong. And yet they're kind of 
divided right down the middle on whether he should be impeached and removed. And I think part of that is that the public kind of says, hey, wait a minute, that's our job. You know, we, we've got an election in November. We're going we're gonna to take care of this. Let us take care of it. So I do think censure is a, is a, is quite, is a quite good strategy. Now, to your second point, it is interesting that in spite of all of the attention paid to the president and what he's done, and he certainly is a headline grabber, um, the fact of the matter is that the Congress, starting with um, the Russian sanctions bill way back in 2017, through sanctions on Saudi Arabia, through a new move that they just passed uh, recently on Iran, have actually been doing exactly what you suggest. They have been limiting President Trump's ability to move in foreign policy. It's almost like, with the one hand, the presidents are saying, the senators, the Republican senators are saying, we love this guy, we love this guy, he didn't do anything wrong, he's a great president, etc., which is, of course, what Donald Trump loves. And on the other hand, in the less visible place, what they're doing is they're tying his hands often on foreign policy in a way that they haven't done to any American president for many, many, many decades. So, you know, it's kind of like they know they've got a problem. They're going to try to mitigate the problem, but without going directly after Trump himself. Okay, looking into your erudite crystal ball, once yeah. the verdict has been rendered and the smoke clears, um, however it goes, Will this have any impact on the Constitution? Because we always hear about a constitutional crisis. I don't know what that means, but right. uh, but will the Constitution endure after this? Absolutely. Constitution has endured for more than two centuries. It will endure for another one at least. Um, look, the, the House did vote articles of impeachment over some rather serious issues. Um, the Senate is going to deliberate. They're going to decide what they decide, and then after that, we're going to go on and we're going to have an election. And people who've paid some attention to this, and I'm sure some people, most people have paid some attention, if not, you know, watching every minute of the trial, um, people will, you know, take this information and put it into their vote, right, and, and make a decision based on that. And that is all part of the Constitution. Constitution doesn't say you have to convict a president who's impeached. It just says you have to have the right to bring articles of impeachment if you think there's wrongdoing. Dr. Elaine K. Mark, Brookings Institution, I want to thank you for joining me once again on the Public Morality. I enjoy it every time we get together. Thank you. So enlightening. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron. B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality in their studios. Normally, the public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.